Yep. As as we um, as we listen to this, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Um, notice where Jesus is, because normally he's seated at the right hand of God. And here, with the first martyr, he gets up. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip came down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Brilliant. Wonderful. Good morning. And uh, yeah, we, there's all sorts of headlines uh, in our world, and I, I wanted to um, start with uh, a few slightly amusing ones where newspapers seem to have got it badly wrong. Um, city unsure why the sewer smells. That so You wonder what's wrong with the council when you're seeing headlines uh, like that. Uh, another one, uh, homicide victims rarely talk to the police. I don't know. <coughs> City Council runs out of time to discuss shorter meetings. Uh, you want to know where the problems really lie? Uh, crocodiles go hungry due to shortage of tourists. <laughs> so it's not just in this country that uh, things, things are kind of going really bad. But very often it's the, it's the headlines that are wrong, if you like. But so often in our world, it's the, the headlines are right. Um, and actually, it's the, it's the real life stories that, that have gone so wrong. Life has gone so wrong uh, for so many people. And, uh, you know, just even in the last uh, couple of weeks, we've had the, you know, the, the ambulance bomb uh, in Kabul with 95 uh, killed, and the terrorism seems to triumph. Um, people trafficking, um, system failure um, with this collapse of case uh, because evidence wasn't submitted um, and the whole thing fell apart. You know, another corrupt official uh, gets away with it uh, even though they're guilty uh, and they walk away. Uh, people around our world are, are, 
persecuted. Um, and uh, uh, we read of that, we hear of that, and uh, we meet the people of that. Everything goes wrong. It may be illness strikes in our life uh, or our weaknesses surface uh, in, uh, in a profound way. And the question is, is God still at work? Is God's kingdom still growing in those situations? Or could it be really that when you feel that life or your life is, is, is broken or is smashed apart in some way, that God is spreading his good news in a powerful new way to people and to places. And that's the story that we read of in persecution, um, that even though it is never easy, that somehow there's good news that comes out of it. Situations are turned around and redeemed, and God is still at work. I remember, I was just saying to John Miles uh, down here, uh, a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago now, there was uh, a Romanian pastor, Baptist pastor, came to share, stood about here, I think, um, uh, in this room, and he was somebody who had uh, kind of grown up um, and preached through the Ceausescu regime, I would assume, in the 70s and 80s in Romania, um, and he was, he was basically being hounded and persecuted for his preaching. Uh, he had, you know, it was back in the days of tapes and uh, audio tapes and all of that, and he put many, many talks together that were around the country, and he was continually being arrested and imprisoned um, during the 70s um, and being charged just with being a Christian minister. And he would go for several, several weeks uh, at a time being uh, beaten up, interrogated, uh, all sorts of mind games going on. And eventually he was exiled from Romania in about 1981. But he continued to travel. But he told about how on one occasion, quite a harrowing experience and a harrowing session of interrogation, um, and his inquisitors um, basically threatened his life. Um, but he said to them, he said, spilling my blood will only increase the growth of the gospel of Jesus. And he had this theology of suffering where he learned that tribulation is never an accident, but is part of God's sovereign plan for building his church. And so he told the interrogator, your um, greatest weapon is killing. But he said, my greatest weapon is dying. And he says, if you kill me, if you spill my blood, my tapes, my audio tapes, will be 10 times more powerful than before. Because everyone who's got one will think, this guy's given his life for this. I'm gonna to listen to this again. And they would go around the country. And he said, ultimately, God, um, would over, you know, God would conquer this country because you've killed me. Anyway, it saved his life. It's probably a good approach uh, in those situations. But um, a powerful testimony um, that we heard and the reality for many. And the story goes of a, of a Chinese pastor and he knew uh, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a very famous uh, Chinese leader, um, very instrumental at the start of establishing the kind of the, the house church, uh, the underground church across uh, China. And he tells of one very famous incident when the government was starting to crack down uh, in China and they were, uh, Nee really wanted to get all the leaders together. He wanted to gather all the pastors of the, of the house church together to encourage them um, and, uh, and for, arrange them all to come to Shanghai so he could speak to them. And uh, the police got news of this. They got wind of what was going, uh, going on. And so they'd made a determination that they would go in plain clothes to this event. And they'd all stand at the back. Um, and when Watchman Nee came to speak at the front, as he started to speak, then they would come down and they would arrest him. And so word gets back to Watchman Nee that this is going to happen. 
but he, he really wants to come. They advise him, don't come, it's not good. You know, if you go, that's just not gonna be good. But he wanted to encourage them because although times were hard, he knew that they were gonna get harder and harder and he wanted to encourage and inspire uh, the leaders uh, of the church. So what he does is he comes to this great gathering in Shanghai and he walks up onto the platform and says nothing. He just looks at everyone for about five minutes just looking at them and they're all thinking what is going on you know is this guy is he lost his nerve he must know what's going to happen as soon as he's, as soon as he speaks um, and then he eventually he puts on this this very angry face um, you can imagine angry emoji kind of face um, and he says nothing just this angry angry face and then he picks up the speaker's glass of water and he uh, smashes it on the platform and then it splinters everywhere across the floor and he starts to walk on it and he starts to crush it beneath his, the soles of his feet um, and again for a, a quite a while um, looking quite smug at what's happened you know he's kind of pleased that he smashed this and he's very smug face kind of there and everybody's trying to work out what, what is he doing what, what on earth is going on and then he stops and then he looks down at the pieces and his face begins to change from uh, hatred to horror and he suddenly, this kind of look of, well, what have I done? Why have I been so stupid? And, and he, he, go, he, le he leans down and he starts to pick up the pieces and he starts to pick them up and say, can I reassemble these? Can I put these bits of glass back together again? Which of course he can't, there's no way that he can do that. But he tries for about another five minutes trying to, trying to reassemble these bits of glass. Um, and then eventually he just throws them apart and he gives up uh, altogether because there's no way that he could do that. But he hasn't said a word. So the police can do nothing about him. But everybody knew, all of the church leaders knew what he was trying to say. And uh, so one of the pastors that was at that um, started to kind of explain the parable that he understood from what Watchman Nee was saying. And he said basically he, the, as a person, represented the state um, and the glass was the church. And the time would come when the state would smash the church into smithereens. Um, and that would be hard to live through, but that was what was coming upon the church. But then the state would realize that he's made a terrible mistake. Because in smashing the church, it hasn't destroyed it, it's dispersed it. It's just spread it everywhere. And of course it goes underground and is now beyond state control. And so for the state to realize that it's, it's made this mistake, it then tries to reconstitute the glass, tries to put it, pull it back together and tries to bring it back up to the surface so it can control it again and where it can see it again. But it would fail because it had been so badly smashed, it's so thoroughly kind of broken um, by that, that it would never ever get its control back of the church in China. It would never come back into kind of that state control. And that is exactly what happened. That's what happens. That's the, what happens as you fast forward through the history uh, in China, that they're never able to do that. It's how it plays out. Because when Mao Zedong comes along, that's what he did. He just absolutely obliterated the church, banned it everywhere, put people in prison camps in, um, in, uh, and all the rest of it. And you can read, read all about that in all sorts of stories uh, and books um, about it. But what happens is Christianity goes into people's homes. It goes down into people's homes and the gospel becomes part of the culture. It becomes spread everywhere. And uh, what the missionaries had only ever dreamt of 
for centuries actually starts to happen. And uh, the people of China start to take it and absorb it into their culture and into their homes and into the, around their kitchen tables. They're talking about it into their family life, into the apartment blocks where they live. It starts to get everywhere in China. So one Shanghai pastor um, put it this way. He said, before the early 1960s, we practiced Christianity in churches, but hardly anywhere else. Okay, since after the persecutions, we practiced it in our homes and therefore everywhere else. But it took a smashing. It took the persecution to bring that about. And that is one of the stories that starts to explain the massive revival that happened in China and continues to this day. And it's a modern day rerun of what we've just read in the book of Acts. Because the first six chapters of Acts, everything is going pretty well. You know, the, the church is, is growing. Um, there's, there's great signs of God working in people's lives. People have great favor uh, with the community. The church is expanding. But the Holy Spirit knows something that the apostles haven't got yet. And that is this, that if the people of God stay in Jerusalem, then the gospel of God dies in Jerusalem. But it's actually got to get out that this is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for Jerusalem. It is for the whole world. It's for the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, as well as the Jewish world. And so they thought that the gospel was really just for them. But in chapter 7, there comes this smashing. Stephen is put on trial. And following his martyrdom, we read that there's a great wave of persecution that breaks out against the church. And then we see this line. Um, that all except the apostles are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so we see persecution doing two things. Okay? Firstly, the power gets shifted downwards. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. They don't get scattered, but everybody else gets scattered because of the persecution. And so the first person that brings a non-Jew to faith isn't one of the apostles. Okay? It's Philip who's a deacon. He's a guy who's in charge of the tables and the feeding and all the various kind of social kind of ministries that they've got there. And uh, that wouldn't have happened without this smashing. It will always been an apostle that would have done it. But this power gets shifted down to people who have never had it before. He finds himself doing things that he wasn't doing before. Um, before the apostles were the, the leaders and the evangelists, but now this guy who's doing some of the practical stuff uh, in helping church run, finds himself preaching the gospel. The power shifts downwards to people who haven't had it before. And uh, he becomes the first cross-cultural missionary to the church. He's not ordained, but he's sent out by God's Spirit to go make a difference. And the second great gift of persecution is not only that power gets shifted downwards to the people who haven't had it before, but that people get pushed outwards to places they haven't been to before. So Philip, who does he share the gospel with? As we just read on that extra bit, so thank you, Dave, for continuing. He, he, he shares it in Samaria. He goes down to the city of Samaria. Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Okay? There was this massive cultural divide between them. It was as strong as, as you, you know, the kind of Protestant Catholic thing that we've seen in, in Northern Ireland at times. And that kind of, kind of level of thing. They just they weren't, were not included in their culture. This, Philip would never have thought of sharing his faith with a Samaritan. 
But because he's now on the run and he's running through Samaria, he starts to share it as he goes. And so he finds himself sharing it with people he would never have chosen to share it with in places he would never have chosen to go with it. And uh, he suddenly starts to realize that Jesus died for the Samaritans as well. And that's what happens in China. The gospel goes down to the people who've never had it before, the ordinary people um, and in their families. And it goes out to places that have never had it before. It's in the family. It's in, um, it's in the home. Um, and therefore it starts to get into every village and every culture and every, every part of the country. And you get the world's largest revival. But it takes a smashing. It takes that persecution in order to do that. But behind that lies quite a disturbing question uh, for all of us. And that is, why does a church appear to need a smashing or persecution? Or why do we, in our own lives, need hard times sometimes in order to share the gospel? And uh, it's one of the really sobering truths about this whole thing is that it seems that God's people, you know, and I look at myself in here, I look into my own heart in here, we have this fatal tendency to want to keep God to ourselves rather than take it out to the world that doesn't know about it. You know, to take it to the generations that don't know about it. And if we want to say that God is for everyone, then we, we have to recognize that often the resistance is in here. The resistance is often within the church not to take it to everyone. And uh, it's, um, has anyone seen the, the film Hacksaw Ridge? Okay, I, I strongly recommend, it's on, um, it's on Netflix, and definitely know you can legally watch it on Netflix. You can probably illegally watch it, you can probably get it on DVD. And it's the story of a guy, I'm forgetting his name now, um, but he, he's, he's actually a, a, a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's as close to a Christian as he needs to be for this, this kind of thing. He's, he's, got a, he's got a very strong faith, and he, um, he goes into the army and he wants to, to fight for his, his country, but he doesn't want to fight for his country because he, he, he's a pacifist. So how do you fight for your country and pacifist? So he decides to go as a medic. They don't get this. And it basically it's about him standing up for his faith and he gets badly persecuted for it. But at the end of the film, he ends up in um, this amazing situation where everybody's getting blown to bits and he has to go, he decides, he's called by God effectively to go and rescue them one at a time in an impossible situation. You have to watch it. And every time he comes back and he just says, he says to God, just give me one more. Just give me one more. And he goes back into the battlefield. It's, it's an unbelievable film. It's, just, it's incredible. It's a true story. Um, but you have to watch it. Hacksaw Ridge, go and watch it. Um, it's so inspiring. Um, about just continuing. But it takes a smashing. It takes, it takes that persecution for the gospel to jump a barrier, for it to get from Jerusalem to get to Samaria, for it to get from Jerusalem ultimately to Rome, for it to get from the center of the Jewish world to the center of the Gentile world. It takes that smashing in order to do that. It is hard news, but it's good news. And, uh, and therefore, we're encouraged, actually, to listen for the crunch, okay? To listen for the crunch uh, that we read. And we, we hear harrowing stories from around the world. 
You know, we've seen it in the last few years on our, on our new screens. But it may just be the sound of the gospel getting out. Because God does something despite it um, through situations. So it's good news, it's hard news, but it can be a good sound. And in our own lives, it might be that actually we experience loss, we experience hardship, and just perhaps there are times when we have to reinterpret that in the light of the opportunities that it opens up. Because what it does is in our hardship um, or whatever, it takes us to situations, doesn't make it any easier, but it just might open up the opportunity for someone else to find the hope that we have. It takes us to different people, it takes us to different places. So again, difficult times in your life, or even with family members, you know, is God wanting you to reach out to a new set of people and to reach into some new places? And that, that's why we've interviewed Chris this morning, because he's been going through a tough time, yet in it, he's just stepping out to try and build some relationship with some different people in our community, with some of the, the passion, vision, and skills um, that he has. And uh, it's a great game, handball, by the way. We had Olympic tickets for handball. It's a very popular game everywhere else in Europe. So watch this space. If you want to be in the national team, now's the time to join. <coughs> Let's pray together. Father, we want to just pray for our world. And we pray for all who face violence and terror um, beyond what we can imagine. And we ask again today that you would presence yourself amongst them. We pray for those who have lost home and possessions and loved ones have been kidnapped or killed. And we pray that they will experience the presence of God in powerful ways. And we pray that through that crunch, Lord, we would see your good news uh, go viral across the communities. And Lord, for ourselves, we pray, help us to share the power that we have with those who feel powerless. Help us to take your message, your truth and grace to new places, to people, to cultures, to generations. And we pray for everyone here this morning who feels broken themselves, who feel life smashed them in some way, that you would show them somehow, Lord, the way that you're at work, even through that situation. In Jesus' name, amen.